Hello and welcome to ClassicalPodcast.com. I'm Lou Smoley, and I'm here to tell you that more than 10 years, we have been streaming free programs of classical music not often heard in the concert hall or on other podcasts or radio programs, and this is all thanks to your generous donations. In order to ensure that our unique programs continue, we appreciate your ongoing support. We welcome donations, large or small, and remind you that because we are a nonprofit organization, your contributions are fully tax-deductible. Thank you so much for helping us to make ClassicalPodcasts.com one of the most listened-to websites of its kind in the world. Hello and welcome to Buried Treasure. I'm Lou Smoley. You may recall that some time ago we did programs on the music from Scandinavian countries such as Norway, Finland, and Iceland. Today we start a five-part series on music from Sweden. Sweden's contribution to classical music Uh, is both varied and extensive. The first composer from Sweden that we're going to play is probably one of the foremost, uh, certainly of the early Swedish composers. That's Johan Helmich Roman. His dates are 1694 to 1758, and he has been properly referred to as the father of Swedish music. Uh, Early in his life, He obtained a royal grant to study abroad uh, in order to perfect his musical ability. Uh, And for that purpose, he lived in England between 1716 and 1721, uh, where he came in contact with many contemporary composers, one of which, Georg Friedrich Handel, influenced Roman quite a bit, uh, and in fact even propagated his music. When Roman came back to Sweden, he became the conductor of the Royal Court Orchestra uh, and organized the first public concerts in Stockholm. And it was probably for these public concerts uh, that uh, the many symphonias that Roman uh, had written uh, were intended. Uh, He went abroad again uh, to England, and this time as well to France, Italy, and Austria between 1735 and 1737, uh, and these symphonias that he wrote at that time reflected the musical principles that were uh, popular on the continent. But Roman gave these ideals the imprint of his originality. Beside the many symphonies that Roman wrote, uh, he also uh, composed chamber works, works for soloist and orchestra, uh, and the like. We're going to begin our survey of music from Sweden uh, now with what is probably uh, Roman's best-known work, the Drottningholm music. The work is in three movements, uh, the Markings 
are the first movement, an allegro conspirato that moves into an andante. Uh, then we have the second movement, an allegro molto, uh, that follows with an allegro and then an allegro assai. The final movement, uh, Mark Presto, um, has a middle section, uh, a slower middle section, uh, marked lento, and then returns to a, a brisker pace for a vivace finale. I should mention that Drottningholm, which means Queen's Islet, uh, an island uh, situated in the Ekir municipality in Stockholm County, Sweden. Uh, it's on the island of Loven in Lake Malern on the outskirts of Stockholm and was the residence of the Swedish royal family since 1981. So here now is Drottningholm music by Johann Helmich Roman. It's performed by the Drottningholm Chamber Orchestra, directed by Stig Westerberg.
Rotting Hole Music by Johann Helmich Roman, the first in our many composers that we're going to be bringing you in our series on music from Sweden. I thought we'd spice up the program a little bit right away by uh, not playing a symphony of Roman's for which he was most noted, but one of his fruit sonatas, uh, which he wrote in, in and around 1727, and which were published in the usual package, uh, in this case, uh, two sets of six sonatas each. We're going to play his last of these dozen sonatas, uh, number 12 in D major. It's in four movements. They're marked Conspirito, Allegro, Con Affretto, and Allegro, and are now performed by Verena Fischer the, on the traverse flute, Klaus Dieter Brandt on the Baroque cello with the harpsichordist Leon Berbin.
of the 57-odd symphonias that Roman wrote, we're going to listen to the symphonia in E minor, number 6. It's in four movements, uh, and their markings are Allegro Staccato, followed immediately, without break, uh, by Larghetto, and then comes an Allegro Assai, and a final Allegro. The work is performed now by the Drottningholm Baroque Ensemble, directed by Jaap Schroeder.
Our next Swedish composer, somewhat younger than uh, was Roman, is Johan Agrell. He was born in 1701 and died in 1765. Uh, Uppsala was his uh, main uh, location. He studied at the university there, originally intending to be a student of the humanity sciences, uh, but his passion for music took over. Agrell did meet uh, Johann Elmer Roman uh, after, I think, the second uh, of his major tours of Europe, Romans, uh, and uh, apparently they got along quite well. Um, during his student years and thereafter, uh, Agrell met many uh, of the uh, celebrated musicians of the time in Sweden uh, and derived a great deal of benefit from his knowledge of them. Uh, particularly, I think, uh, Pietro Locatelli was one, as well as Jean-Marie Leclerc from France. We're going to hear two works by Agrell, but we're going to reverse the chronology, if you will, and play uh, his late violin concerto in D major first. It is primarily built on the Italian model of the time, uh, but the density of the work's musical texture shows an affinity um, for the still young Mannheim school and its very new uh, and rather staid style. The movements of the concerto are three, as one might expect, an allegro followed by a middle section largo and then returning to an allegro. It's performed now by the violinist Circa Lisa K. 
Kaikainen Pilch with the Helsinki Baroque Orchestra directed by Apo Hakainen, who also plays the harpsichord.
Grill wrote at least 22 symphonies during his lifetime uh, and was popular for the form, as was Roman as well. We're going to listen to the Symphonia in E-flat, which is in three movements, as are most of the Symphonia of Agrell. Uh, the movements are symmetrical in, in form. An allegro begins the work. Uh, the middle section is an andante and the finale an allegro. One interesting note about this Sinfonia is that it was conducted uh, in the Municipal Theater in Amsterdam by, of all people, Antonio Vivaldi. Uh, this was in 1738. So let's listen to it uh, in a more popular version uh, performed by the Helsinki Baroque Orchestra directed by Arpo Hakainen, who was also at the harpsichord. The Symphony in E-flat by Johann Agrell.
going to switch gears now uh, to vocal music uh, with the composer from the 18th century, Carl Michael Bellman, a name undoubtedly unfamiliar to many of you. Uh, Bellman was a kind of troubadour in a sense. He wrote principally songs, some of which he called epistles, uh, and uh, he wrote them in a troubadourian fashion as late as the 18th century. He too went to the university city of Uppsala, um, which became a, a, a virtually a magnet of learning at the time in Sweden. As both a musician and a poet, Bellman was an heir to a long established tradition in many aspects, from his own Nordic background of the Skaldic saga tales of rather strange events, uh, as in the Anglo-Saxon Beowulf. But he also was fascinated by French music uh, and listened to many performances at the Opera Comique, which gave Bellman uh, quite an ex uh, extensive experience in the parody techniques uh, of old tunes using new words. One might liken him to the English John Gay, for example, who was a contemporary. But Belmont wrote uh, a great deal more uh, individual vocal music. Uh, his so-called 82 epistles and 65 songs, so entitled, depict a vivid moment uh, in the experience of his favorite character, Fredman, uh, through which the composer focuses his imagination. We're going to listen to four uh, vocal works by Bellman in sequence. First, we'll hear Fredman's epistle number 56, uh, titled Memorandum, 
of which the guitar is the accompaniment. Then we'll hear Fredman's song number 16, uh, an eat, drink, and be merry kind of expression. Villemon uses rather dizzy uh, tempos here, uh, making the song even more unpredictable. Then we'll hear Fredman's epistle number 71, to Ula at her window, fisherman's cottage, at lunchtime on a summer day. In this song, Ula Windblad, should mention that Windblad means vine leaf, is su the subject of a pastoral in which Bellman, on horseback, offers her gifts from nature. Bellman takes her to the country where, as one might see today, Trees stand still by the shores of the archipelago as the wind pushes the water against the rocks. It would appear that Ula's rather ragged life is redeemed here. The fourth and last song is number 38, another Fredman song. Uh, here, Bellman parodies, as he often does, the Old Testament, as he occasionally does. But in this case, uh, his most famous concerns being planting vineyards uh, is not done by the Romans, but by the shipwrecked Noah. The inference apparently being at the end of the song that Potiphar's wives are still around. The modern troubadour, Martin Best, is the tenor uh, and also plays on the sister and guitar. In four songs, or three songs and one epistle, if you wish, uh, by the Swedish composer Carl Michael Bellman.
A party pass wanking the elegant way Joseph to Amos entices Clasping his garment and saying She'd say, ah, stay, ah, stay Within a four-post of this loveliest rose Begs him to sample her spices But Joseph, the path of discretion Chose the story he goes oh, Had I been Joseph, I know for one Had I been Joseph, I know for one What I should have done but Joseph the nymph did most scurvily use And left her imploring and begging Did ever a madman who walked into shoes Such offer refuse Drink Potiphar's wine, burn his cedar for fuel With never a thought of a reckoning And dwell in his hall without rival Nor duel nor scandal cruel Comrades a cheer for Potiphar's wife Comrades a cheer for Potiphar's wife She sleeps from strife the trouble with Joseph was simply that he, somber and sober, etc. Never a swain for a lady could be that I can see. A wretched God's captain befuddled and weak, Potiphar hardly was better. And in the bride bed, so feeble and weak, he'd have a creak. Comrades a cheer for Potiphar's wife, comrades a cheer for Potiphar's wife. She's still in this life. Our next composer is one of the most important as well as most talented composers of the 18th century. Uh, and I say that notwithstanding Mozart and Haydn, because Josef Martin Krauss, who's actually not a native Swede, but born in Germany, central Germany, uh, was a major figure. Uh, respected highly by the leading composers of the time and the general public. Even though he had some difficulty in his life and died very young, uh, his dates are 1756 to 1792, Krauss received his musical education mostly uh, in the early years in Germany, uh, in Mannheim, a very uh, appropriate place. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a great influence that Mannheim and the composers that flourished there during the 18th century on Krauss uh, during his early years and I guess through his brief life. But Krauss was not just a musician. Uh, he was a knowledgeable, uh, well, I guess scholar is appropriate, um, in German literature uh, as well. In fact, he even wrote a, a treatise uh, on the subject um, as it related to music, that was published in 1778. As a student, he was attracted to the very uh, increasingly popular Sturm und Drang movement uh, during the time. When Krauss decided to make music his life's endeavor, uh, he his rather poorly economic situation uh, forced him to seek a position, hoping to find uh, such uh, in the court of Gustav III in Sweden. And yet it took him but two years, in 1780, to be elected as a member of the Royal Swedish Academy of Music, where he was commissioned to compose a trial opera, which became Proserpine. We'll hear sections from this opera later on. Then in 1782, Krauss 
went on a grand tour of Europe uh, at the expense of, of his sovereign to observe the latest musical styles and trends that took him throughout Germany, Austria, Italy, England, and France, where he met major figures of the period, such as Gluck and Haydn, both of whom respected and admired Krauss highly. Five years later, he became uh, the Kapellmeister and director of the curriculum at the Royal Academy of Music. Soon his reputation increased, particularly for his disciplined conducting, his compositions, of course, uh, and his pedagogical standards. But soon after his sovereign, Gustav III, was assassinated in 1792, Krauss died at the age of 36. Krauss's early training led him to the Italian style of the Mannheim composers, uh, the contrapuntal rigor of Franz Avar Richter and Johann Sebastian Bach, as well as the dramatic style that was developing at the time, uh, which is exemplified by C.P.E. Bach, Gluck, and Gretry. As for Krauss's own musical development, he was very forward-looking in the stylistic devices that were virtually anticipated in his music uh, and looked forward to the next century. None other than Haydn considered Krauss one of only two geniuses that he knew, and the other was Mozart. Krauss composed in virtually every genre, uh, at least of the major ones. Uh, he, his interest seemed to, at least initially, uh, develop mostly uh, for the stage works that he wrote in the early years, uh, such as Proserpine. And of course, we're going to hear uh, music from one, probably his best stage work, uh, Aeneas in Carthage. It's an enormous opera, six acts. Uh, it takes a good four and a half hours to produce. And I don't believe there is a single recording available of its entirety. But we do have some orchestral excerpts to play for you. The text of the opera, or at least the summary of the text, uh, was provided by none other than the king himself. Gustav III, whose outline for the story was expanded by Kelgren. But Aeneas is not just an opera that uh, plays in with the traditional historical operatic works of the past, say, 100, 150 years at his time, but is, a, is as I say, uh, a, a transcendent work in that uh, it, it follows the Virgil tale incorporating intensely human emotions, uh, both of gods and mortals. This is an, a good example of Krauss as the intermediary between the formalistic classical style of the Monheimers uh, and the early Romantic era that uh, succeeded him 
uh, after his death. We're going to listen to a series of excerpts, all orchestral, from Aeneas in Carthage. And they will be played in sequence. Uh, we'll start with the prologue and overture. There are two overtures, I should mention, in this opera, uh, uh, one virtually following the other. Then we'll hear after that from Act One, uh, the March of the Carthaginians. From Act Two, a section called the Storm. From Act Three, following the Dance of the Carthaginian Maidens. From Act Four, the March of the Roman Soldiers and an interlude that follows, and we'll end with a chaconne, the final uh, scene of Act Five of this remarkable opera. The Sinfonia Finlandia Yivaskaila is conducted by Patrick Galois. <laughs> Thank you. 
This is a remarkable feat of a man of but 35 to write such an extensive and forward-looking, as I say, uh, opera. Uh, and yet we, uh, we do not, that I know of, have a recording of the entirety. Uh, and I hope that someday someone will be ambitious enough to do that very thing and present us with an, the entire work. There is little doubt that Krauss wrote more than the dozen or so symphonies that remain, um, most of the others being lost. But those that we fortunately have indicate a composer, as in the uh, stage works, that is moving more in the direction of romanticism. Uh, more intense, more emotional, more dramatic, more interested in exemplifying in his stage works the actual emotional quality of the events that are being described in the music and on the stage. Yet his time in Mannheim uh, did influence him greatly in stylistically in terms of the symphony, which, of course, Mannheim composers were famous for, Johann uh, Schamitz particularly. So Krauss took upon himself uh, to write symphonies that had a, a greater dramatic intensity than the times uh, were used to. One excellent example of this characteristic of Krauss's symphonic repertory uh, is the Symphony of Funebre uh, in C minor. Uh, it's possibly Krauss's most dramatic and least typical symphonic work, written in April of 1792, just a month after Gustav III was shot at a masked ball and died just three weeks later. The work is in four movements, they're marked Andante Mesto, a sad Andante, certainly uh, characteristic of the work itself. The second movement is a Larghetto, the third a Chorale, and the last is marked Adagio. So even the Tempi are formal aspects of this intensely moving work. We'll hear it now. The Sinfonia Funebre in C minor, performed by the Swedish Chamber Orchestra, directed by Peter Sundqvist.
stop. This is number eight. It's in a folder. Continue. Next, we thought we'd, we'd present another symphony um, in a somewhat different mode. Uh, it's in the major key of A. This is one of the earliest symphonies that Krauss wrote uh, to have survived, at least, and evidences the influence uh, of the Mannheim composers. Uh, Mannheim, uh, for some four years, became a focal point uh, in um, the composer's life. Already in this early work, there is much evidence of Krauss's interest in providing a dramatic foundation uh, to his music. The first movement marked Allegro's Asai, was characterized by strong unisons, flashing motivic figures, and expansively developed contrasting themes. The second movement, marked Allegretto, is the lyrical movement and is followed by a minuet. Um, only one other time in the surviving symphonies we have did Krauss include a minuet movement in his symphony. Also interesting here uh, is the rather obtuse dance rhythm used as opposed to the more staid uh, triple meter uh, of the typical classical symphony. The final movement, marked presto, is definitely the tour de force of the symphony. Uh, it has a central section uh, that depicts a hunt complete with authentic horn calls. The viola part is largely missing in the original, so for this recording uh, we're told that the viola part has been added uh, by doubling the bass line at the octave. This represents one possible version of the work, although the original part may have been more independent, as evidenced by the extant sections in the second and final movements. Thank you. 
During the early years of his long European tour, particularly in 1782, Krauss wrote a cantata for the king's birthday, Zum Gebärtstage des Königs. It has a curious history in that it was composed at one of Krauss's first stops while traveling through Germany uh, and in rather a quick period of time. The words uh, for what we're going to hear were contributed by a lawyer, Christoph Heinrich Gröning, who studied in Göttingen at the same time as Strauss. The cantata is grandly conceived, the soloists, chorus, and orchestra. Uh, it begins with an overture and offers several recitatives, two arias, one of which we'll hear, a duet, a divertimento, and concluding chorus. We're going to hear the soprano aria Ternalisa Goldnesaita, which has a rather extensive recitative accompanied by the strings. The form here is quite in interesting and inventive. It's Krauss's version of a da capo aria, beginning with a shimmering bright largo uh, in which the clavier obligato is made to depict the golden strings referred to in the text. Barbara Bonney is the soprano with the Drottningholm Court Theatre Orchestra directed by Thomas Schubach.
Proserpine was a late work in Krauss's all-too-brief lifetime. Uh, it's an opera in one act with a libretto by Johann Henrik Kelgren, which some considered the best poet in Sweden. It was written between 1780 and 1781, along with the influences of the Italian school and French styles of the times, there's also, again, the influence of the Sturm und Drang spirit uh, that was abroad in the land at the time. The story of Proserpine is naturally mythical uh, in origin, it takes place in Sicily, uh, and involves both gods and uh, humans. Uh, in a twisted and tangled series of love relationships, positive and negative. We're going to hear five excerpts uh, from the work uh, in sequence. The first is Aria Medcour, sung by Proserpine. Then follows an aria by Ceres, who is Proserpine's mother. Following that, an aria of Atis, uh, who is Cyana's lover. Cyana is a, a nymph, uh, but he, he, Atis, is also in love with Proserpine. The fourth uh, section is a tercet for Ceres, Atis, and Cyana, and then we'll listen to the final chorus. The soprano Anna Eklund Taratino sings Proserpine, the daughter of Jupiter and Ceres. We hear Hilady Martin Pelto singing Ceres, uh, Proserpine's mother. Cayena, uh, the nymph, is sung by Suzanne Ryden. Atis, who is the lover of both. Cyana and Proserpine. It's sung by Stephen Smith. The Stockholm Chamber Orchestra and Chorus is directed by Mark Tatlow.
After the unfortunate and untimely death of Josef Martin Krauss, there was a hiatus in Swedish music uh, until uh, we come across the figure of Joachim Nicholas Egert, uh, whose dates were 1779 to 1813. Egert, as well as Krauss, uh, was born in Germany in a small village off the Baltic coast. Eggert's early training already displayed a musical talent uh, from early years. Uh, he traveled a good deal as a young man uh, and against his father's wishes uh, he wanted to continue uh, to study as a, a potential composer and a performer uh, and uh, he did so. But a serious illness caused him to waylay uh, his travels, which were apparently already intended early on uh, to find as its, its ultimate end Stockholm. Uh, he became more and more noted as a composer, and finally in 1807 appointed Kapellmeister and a member of the Royal Swedish Academy of Music. The new monarch of Sweden, Karl XIII, wanted to reestablish the Swedish Music Academy uh, as a world-class uh, institution. But his plans were interrupted 
uh, when Egert uh, fell fatally ill and died on the 14th of April, 1813, at the home of one of his students uh, who lived in the Swedish countryside. Like Krauss to some extent, although not as vigorous, Egert was also well known as a progressive. Uh, he conducted public concerts, introducing Beethoven to Stockholm in 1808, and performed works by Haydn, his late oratorios, and Mozart's Magic Flute. As a composer, Egert could be placed between uh, Krauss and Franz Berbold, who we'll hear from uh, after Egert. Uh, and this period was a difficult time for Sweden in, because of the depletion uh, of its resources uh, and new talents. Uh, but Egert uh, filled that gap to some extent. We're going to listen first to an overture by Egert to the Moors of Spain, uh, this is part of the incidental music that, that Eger wrote uh, for the work, uh, which was not intended as a full-blown uh, offering of incidental music as such, but uh, is one of several pieces that, that the composer wrote to be inserted in the performance of stage works. In this case, the Moors of Spain the overture to which is performed now by the Gavla Symphony, directed by Gerard Corsten.
Next, we're going to listen to one of the four complete symphonies that uh, Eggert wrote in his lifetime. The fifth that he worked on uh, toward the end was never completed. The work we're going to present is the Symphony Number no. 3 in E-flat, written in 1807. The three movements are first an adagio maestoso that is followed by an allegro spiritoso. The second movement is a march, marked grave. The third and final movement is a fugue, uh, marked adagio maestoso, followed by an allegro. This structure is quite unusual and certainly uh, indicates a progressive character to his uh, structural interests. Eger uses three trombones uh, in this symphony, uh, and this um, is interesting in that it predates Beethoven's fifth, uh, in which trombones are featured. The slow, somewhat dirge-like uh, second movement uh, contains music adopted uh, for the composer's funeral music for Duke Adolf Frederick, written in 1805. Given these uh, derivatives, if you will, you would think that the symphony as a whole uh, is rather patch a patchwork uh, of different works by the composer, uh, and yet there is a, a sense of some romantic fervor in the music, resulting uh, from uh, abrupt rhythmic changes uh, from duple to triple meter uh, and a wide range of dynamic markings. The effect of all of these uh, elements and others seem to foreshadow the romantic tone poem. Given these and many other aspects uh, of, of Symphony Number no. 3 and others in this four grouping of symphonies, seem to indicate that Egret is highly underrated uh, and is, is vanishing from the repertory uh, an unfortunate circumstance, particularly uh, in the transitional period uh, that his music became known to some degree in Europe after Beethoven died. Again, we hear the Gavel Symphony, directed by Gerard Corsten, in the Symphony Number no. 3 in E-flat, by Joachim Nicholas Egert.
The last composer on our program today, uh, the first part of our music from Sweden, is Franz Birvold. Now, this was a name virtually unknown uh, at the time he lived, at least as a composer uh, and as a performer. Why was that? Why did this great genius who produced some of the great music to come from Scandinavia in the 19th century uh, was so little known in his time? Well, this happens, as you know, but in the case of Beerbold, I think it's particular uh, to two elements that Robert Layton points out in his excellent notes to uh, the recording of the four symphonies is that Beerbold was out of the country uh, during his lifetime a, a great deal uh, and so didn't promote his music in, in Sweden as well as he might have. Uh, there's also a, a second reason that Leighton points out in that at the time that Beerbold lived uh, and I guess somewhat thereafter uh, the Swedes encountered mostly the composer's operettas, lighter music, uh, which he was noted for, at least at the time when he might have been better served had uh, his more substantial works uh, been in the public ear. But fortunately, Beerville came to the attention of the European public, uh, if so much later than he should have, uh, and is now considered by many, possibly even Sweden's greatest composer. Um, these superlatives, of course, notwithstanding, uh, the four symphonies that he did, did leave, some occasional tone poems, are major works uh, that indicate his importance as a composer. We're going to listen to two works by Beerbold. First, his symphonic poem Elfenspiel, or The Play of the Elves, which was written in 1841. The work begins quietly, uh, seems meditatively as well, which is followed by lively uh, muted music that, that seems to indicate a, a kind of meditative character, which is unlike the playful elves that we're going to hear in this piece. There's, of course, a Mendelssohnian character here, but it's subdued to some extent. A brief and rather dissonant climax on the horns and trumpets uh, takes us to the high point of, of the piece, after which uh, the main ideas return uh, in a somewhat peremptory coda. Let's listen now to Elfenspiel, Play of the Elves, performed again by the Gavely Symphony, directed by Petri Sakari. Thank you. 
We're going to conclude this first part of our program on music from Sweden uh, with the third symphony, the so-called Singulaire Symphony by Berwald. According to the autograph of the score, it was written, uh, or at least was dated, March 1845. The title Singulaire seems rather an enigma uh, in that the work is certainly not uh, a singular work in the, in the sense that the word might mean. Uh, we don't have much explanation here from the composer. Um, it is not in advance of Mendelssohn or Schumann, but there are all reveal fresh and novel ideas. One can hear the obvious influence of Beethoven, uh, a light and mercurial scherzo uh, would indicate Mendelssohn's influence here, which is not surprising. And the third and last movement of the symphony is virtually on fire. Uh, robust, spirited, uh, with splendid contrast uh, in languid poetry. Uh, of the adagio, which encompasses the scherzo proper. Leighton points out, uh, and I certainly agree, uh, that this symphony as a whole um, seems to go beyond the so-called academic, Germanic style that was developing in the first half of the 19th century. Um, and such as in, in other Scandinavian composers, uh, such as Niels Gade. The three movements are marked first, uh, there's an allegro full coso. The second, as I mentioned, is an adagio with a middle section scherzo marked allegro assai. Uh, and the third movement, presto. We're going to hear now the Gothenburg Symphony Orchestra, directed by Naomi Yervi. In the symphony number three, the so-called Singulaire by Franz Berwald.
the third symphony of Berval, we conclude the first part in our five-part series on music from Sweden. Uh, next time we'll move in more substantially to the Romantic era. We'll hear music by Willem Petersen Berger, Wilhelm Stenhammer, and Ugo Alven, among others. Till then, this has been Lou Smoley for Buried Treasure. And please don't forget to make a contribution to the website to keep it a free service. Just go to our homepage at classicalpodcasts.com where you can donate any amount through PayPal.